Last week, nearly the entire message was focused on the unimaginable riches we have in the Word of God. If we are Christ's, we need to invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate his word to our hearts and minds. I also made a plea for each of us to set aside the trivial things in our lives and replace them with things of substance, particularly a prayerful study of the Bible as we face potentially difficult days ahead. Is YouTube or Facebook or TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram or any other thing than God's word going to sustain you when persecution comes? I assure you it will not. God's very words are to be found in our Bibles. It has transformed the lives of hundreds of millions of individuals and it has transformed nations. If we don't love God's word, the problem does not lie with him or the message to us. The problem lies with us in our hearts. If you spend more time with the world than you do with Christ, you will be conformed to this world as you follow a very comfortable path to destruction. If you spend more time with Christ than with the world, you will be transformed as your mind is renewed to everlasting life. Let's read the word of the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 8. Verses 9 through 18. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 18. The word of the Lord. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches. Branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in the courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths, for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, would you, by your spirit, illuminate your word to our hearts this morning. Help us to learn something in your word this morning that transforms us into the image of Christ just a little more. We know that the work is all yours. It is finished, you said on the cross, and we want to receive uh, that work by faith this morning as we look into your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've titled today's message, The Joy of the Lord is Your Strength. We've sung the song, haven't we? And we read where it came from here today. The people responded to the reading of the word of God with weeping. These people had finally seen who they truly are. I wonder sometimes how much of a stumbling block this is for many people that encounter the truth of Christianity. Jesus made no apologies for revealing man for what he truly was, a sinner and an enemy of God, deserving the wrath of God and ultimately hell. For a person to enter a relationship with Christ, they must agree with his assessment of their condition and their need. Each one of us must face the fact that we are broken, fallen, filthy, and then the word that I'm not allowed to say, sinful people, whose only salvation can be found at the cross. For some of us, maybe for all of us, it is easier to deny a hard truth than to own it. This acknowledgement may come with a significant amount of pain, as it did for the Jews today in our reading, but it comes with an even greater amount of reward. When the Holy Spirit immerses us into Christ, all that filth is washed away. To be remembered before the throne of God no more. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those that weep now, for you shall laugh. So the word of God was doing its intended work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Sometimes it hurts to be reproved and corrected. And these tears were evidence of some of that pain. But you know it as well as I do, there is such a thing as sweet pain. I should stop here and tell you a little story about my wife and I. I hope she'll forgive me. Back when we were newly married, my wife would sometimes give me a foot rub. She had a way of finding a spot on my toes that when she pressed just right, would send me just about to the ceiling. The only parts of me touching the floor or the couch would be the back of my head and the other foot. She would smile gently and say something like, I know it hurts, but it's sweet pain. <laughs> She's laughing. She knows she said it several times. We have all experienced times when we wept because something was just plain wrong. Our lives were invaded by some tragic event or news that nearly drove us to our knees because we wished it never would have occurred. Some sin or consequence 
of sin in general, that finally caught up with us or found us in relative peace and calm and ripped it to shreds. Some event that, at first, we cannot see any glimmer of hope through. We cannot imagine how anything good could come from something so agonizing. This is not sweet pain. This is pain of the worst kind. It is the pain of betrayal. It is like the pain of a spreading infection with its ceaseless discomfort, itch, and needles of agony. The Jews in our passage today who were weeping because of the words of God through Moses were not experiencing this kind of pain, I don't think. Their weeping may have begun that way as they read what God required of them and what the consequences were of them breaking the law. But they were listening to Ezra read at the end of the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus where God describes his character to them, that he is the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Pain was transformed into sweet pain when hope entered. Yes, they had broken God's law intentionally and frequently, but God had a solution. The God of Israel, the Lord God, is a God of forgiveness and redemption as well as a God of holiness and justice. Moreover, God wanted to forgive them. Have you ever had that experience where somebody has wronged you and they sincerely come to you and apologize and you sort of reluctantly forgive them because you kind of want to hold a grudge for a while? It's like, you know what? I'm a little bit upset and I kind of want to remain upset. So I really don't want to hear your apology right now. This is not what God is like. He actually wanted and longed to forgive them. They weren't left to their own imaginations as to how they would approach God in need of forgiveness. God laid it out for them in exquisite detail. Yes, sin required death. The shedding of blood, they knew that. But God said, it doesn't have to be your death. It doesn't have to be your blood. It could be the substitutionary death of a perfect, clean, innocent animal. When hope enters any situation, we can smile through the tears. To everything, there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Yes, that's in your Bible. Hope is the reason the Christian does not mourn the way others mourn. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14 says this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. 
Why is our pain different? Hope. God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Do you miss someone that has passed away and they died in the Lord? God will bring with him those that sleep. It's a promise. The very fact that Christians used the word sleep to describe the dead in Christ reveals hope in the hearts of those left behind. When we put our child to sleep at night, we don't cry because they are no longer conscious. In fact, some of you young mothers rejoice when the little stinker is finally out for the night. Don't lie, I know you do. <laughs> we know we will see them again in the morning when they awake. The difference in the death of the Christian is simply the length of time that the body is asleep. We can rejoice knowing their spirit is with Christ, but we don't know when we will see our loved one again. That's sweet pain. Suppose you take someone to the airport. They are going to get on a plane to somewhere halfway around the world, but you have no idea when they will return. It could be the next day. It could be 50 years. You just don't know. So you weep when you say goodbye because there is the potential that you may not see them for a long time. I don't want to belabor the point too much more other than to say that pain with hope can be endured because weeping will be turned to joy. That's promise. C.H. Spurgeon once said, Hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity and only to be discovered in the night of adversity. Another preacher once said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the people are instructed to stop mourning and weeping. At first glance, it seems like a strange request given by Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites. And I think it would be helpful to understand these Jewish feast days a little better to understand why the Jews were instructed to cease from mourning. When the Jewish leaders told the people to stop weeping, this wasn't like us telling our kids to stop crying because it's Christmas and we'll ruin this year's picture in front of the Christmas tree. There's way more going on here. So let's look very briefly at these feasts. God, in Leviticus chapter 23, described or prescribed seven feasts for the Jews to observe. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, it was sometimes called, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. According to Leviticus 23, the first three, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits, take place in March and April. The fourth, Pentecost, takes place in early June. After a significant gap, the final three gatherings, Trumpets, Atonement, and Booths, take place in September or October. Someday I'd like to do a series on the significance of each of these feasts. 
in light of God's salvific plan in Jesus Christ. Of course, I'm still not planning on finishing Nehemiah. I'm waiting for the trumpet so that we can finish Nehemiah with the thousands of people gathered together at the throne of God and, and look at his word then. But in case that doesn't happen, uh, someday maybe we'll do a, a series on these feasts. For today, though, in the interest of time, we'll briefly only look at the three main feasts the Jews and of the Jews and perhaps just touch on some of the others just for context. Four of these feasts the Jews could celebrate in their homes, wherever they were, but the other three were special. God commanded that his people return to Jerusalem to observe them. Those feasts were the Passover, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. They are called in Hebrew, and I'm sure I won't say this correctly, Shalosh Rechalim, the three pilgrimage festivals. Now, the first two of these we are somewhat familiar with if we are at all acquainted with the New Testament. The Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, talk often about how Jesus made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, particularly his final Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. We are reminded of John the Baptist's statement when he encountered Jesus by the Jordan River. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Interestingly, depending on how you understand the chronology of Leviticus 23, there is a significant possibility that Jesus was crucified on Passover, buried on the first day of unleavened bread, and raised on the first day of the Feast of First Fruits. Anyway, it is in the book of Acts that we encounter the Christian significance of Pentecost, as this is the day shortly after Christ's ascension into heaven that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus' disciples waiting in Jerusalem and they proclaim the gospel to all men in their own native languages. In Leviticus 23, God commands that the Jews begin the celebration of Pentecost by taking two loaves of leavened bread and waving them before the Lord. This is the only time that leaven is used in any Jewish offering because it is biblically a symbol for sin and impurity. Maybe this is a bit of a stretch, but would it be too much to suggest that these two leavened loaves would represent Jews and Gentiles, all sinners, being offered before God in Christ? I'll let you consider that. Anyway, Pentecost occurred on the, 15th, on the 50th day after Passover and after Jesus' crucifixion. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 reads, So let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come but the substance is of Christ. So God was laying out these festivals for the people to point them to Christ. So if these feasts are a shadow of things to come in which the reality is Jesus Christ, then after Pentecost, there is a gap in the feasts through the summer as the harvest is ripening. And what is the next feast after Pentecost on God's messianic calendar? 
the Feast of Trumpets. This is no accident. The Feast of Trumpets is called Rosh Hashanah by Jews today, which means head of the year. It is celebrated as the day in which God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden, paradise. Like our New Year's Day, it is a celebration of new beginnings. Traditionally, a shofar, which is a hollowed-out ram's horn, is sounded from the temple in Jerusalem, at which time the laborers outside the city would immediately cease working and make their way to the temple. The sounding of the shofar has had many purposes, such as announcing the kingship of Messiah, but it was originally done to remind the Jews that they were God's covenant people, a covenant that they agreed to back in Moses' day at Mount Sinai when a trumpet blast called the people to receive the law, not on their hearts, as they would through the Messiah and the new covenant one day, but on tablets of stone. But what then of the Feast of Booths? The final feast of the year to which our passage today refers. The New Testament mentions it, as far as I could tell, only once, and that is in John chapter 7. So let's read that passage, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 10. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Jesus' brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. Go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. On so many levels, this passage took on a refreshing meaning for me as I read it this week. For those of you interested in eschatology, I hope you take some time to prayerfully meditate on these few verses. Okay, we're getting there. Hang in there. Quick summary then. The Passover was a feast to celebrate how, key, the key word, celebrate how God delivered the Jews in Egypt from the death angel that swept through the land, slaying all the firstborn in families that did not apply the blood of the Passover lamb to their doorposts and lintel. Remembering this event was to be a cause of great celebration. Today, we know that Jesus is our Paschal lamb, for it was at the Passover that he was slain and his blood was shed to take away the sins of the world. Next is Pentecost. 
Pentecost was a time to celebrate God's wonderful provision in bringing Israel into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They were to do no work but to rejoice in the plentiful harvest God had provided, meeting all their needs and more. Finally, number three, at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, the Jews were to remember that God had completed the victory over the Egyptians and brought them out of Egypt and into the wilderness where they had to dwell in booths. And God continued to miraculously supply all their needs, even in that barren land. He gave them manna from heaven and water from a rock when they couldn't provide anything for themselves. For this reason, they were not to weep or mourn. God had delivered them. To spend the day downcast was to fail to remember the miraculous provision that God had made for the people, delivering them from slavery and reminding them that they are a chosen people. Whatever grief the people were experiencing as a result of hearing their failure to keep the law of God, the joy of the Lord was to be their strength as they remembered that their God was a God of redemption and deliverance. Well, I know that was a lot. And I know I get a little carried away, as I often do on topics like this one. But I hope you were edified in seeing the miraculous cohesion of God's redemptive and salvific plan through thousands of years of scriptural history. This is no story concocted by the mind of any man. Only the divine mind could peer across the millennia and see the shadow of the cross covering every event. Final quick point. Our emotions are not entirely beyond our control. We can rejoice in the Lord always when we remember who he is and everything he has done for us. We can rejoice when we know that he is near and that he is coming again very soon. We may be tempted to grieve because of our sin or because things look so grim around us as they do right now or because we have forgotten our hope. But our God is a God of redemption and deliverance. He did not leave us in our sins and he will not leave us in this world. In the person of Christ, our sins are cast into the deepest part of the sea and remembered no more before God. No matter how difficult things may get in this life, because we live in a world wholly infected by sin, this is not our permanent lot. We can live here and now in complete victory because where Jesus is, there we will be also in God's paradise forevermore. I want to give some words of encouragement to those of you that are suffering right now, as I have been for some weeks. It is easy to forget that this world is not our home. But when I see a sunset or the stars at night, I try to remind myself that God is preparing a wonderful place for me. In heaven above, And I will leave all the sin and the lies and the pain behind.
as Jesus was hanging on the cross in unspeakable agony. Beside him, there was another man hanging, also suffering terribly. He was facing the prospect of dying in his sin. But he looked over and he saw salvation hanging there beside him. And even in his pain, he asked Jesus, simple words, he asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. Jesus, as he often does, did one better. He would hold this man in his heart beginning at that very moment. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Can you even begin to imagine the comfort and relief and joy that man must have felt upon hearing these words of the Lord? These words are for you, too, and for me. When we look at Jesus and ask him to remember us, too. Okay, that's the first three verses. The people keep the Feast of Booths. They were eager to obey the words of the law of God. They had just heard Ezra read Leviticus 23, in which all these wonderful feasts were declared by the Lord through Moses. They realized that now was the time of year to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And they did not hesitate to act in obedience to the word they had just received. They may not have understood all the implications and details of this time, but they were willing to obey. They recognized that in a similar way that God had delivered the Israelites from bondage in Egypt and brought them into the promised land, he had delivered the Jews again from bondage in Babylon and brought them home once more. And they had the future messianic promise that God would deliver them once and for all from sin, Satan, and finally death. And this Messiah would rule in perfect righteousness over the whole earth. The feast. The Feast of Tabernacles was about remembering how God had blessed and provided for Israel in the wilderness during the Exodus. They were experiencing God's blessing and provision for them. And it made something old seem brand new to them. In many ways, it would be like the times of year when we celebrate Easter and Christmas. We've all heard the stories a hundred times. But there is something about those seasons that rekindles our hearts and makes an event that took place 2,000 years ago, halfway across the world, a fresh event in our hearts. Gladness and freedom come only through obedience. We all want to experience gladness and freedom, maybe more today than we have for many years. Gladness, by the way, is not happiness. Gladness is way deeper than that. When things go badly, we lose our happiness. But we can still be glad, even through difficult times. But there is something nebulous about gladness and freedom. If we pursue gladness without obedience, 
It slips through our fingers like water through a sieve. If we pursue freedom without obedience, it also slips away. Without obedience, gladness and freedom transform into licentiousness. And licentiousness will shackle you to its master, death. What we need to pursue, rather, is obedience, as these Jews did. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. We have been given the gift of even having the ability to pursue obedience to Christ. And we have been given the gift of his righteousness through the Holy Spirit. Then, once we pursue that, gladness and freedom come as a byproduct. Final point. At the end of our passage today, it says that the Jews continued to hear and understand the word of God. To close our passage and chapter 8 of Nehemiah, it says, Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. I don't know about you, but this passage took on new meaning to me because I miss our sacred assemblies. I have to be quite frank with you. I am a little jealous of these folks that they were able to read God's word day by day and then they were all able to gather together in a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Folks, we need to be reading the word of God. I hope we can gather again soon in our sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner as well. Until that time, though, be in the word. We need it now more than we've ever needed it before. If you were reading a chapter a day, read two. If you were reading two, read four. We need to be spiritually sustained through this dry time. And we have the privilege of speaking to our rock, Christ. And the double privilege of the word of God flowing out to us to quench our thirsty hearts and souls. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are in many ways uh, people uh, that are dealing with some grief. I know that there are many folks listening that are living in some degree of pain. But Father, help this not to be where we set our eyes. Help us to set our eyes on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we may experience joy through the tears, gladness, not happiness. Happiness is fleeting. But Lord, we want to experience your gladness. And so we humbly entreat that you would bless us with your gladness.
I pray for each person listening to this and, and each person that normally gather together here in this place, that you would bind up wounds and broken hearts, that health issues, particularly mental health issues through this time, would be healed by the gladness that you spread to your people, that we would be people that are glad to live in obedience and experience the wonderful freedom that comes as a result. Help us to be in your word now more than ever. Help us to be an encouragement to those that are hurting. Some of us, some of us can endure these times with more strength than others. And I pray that that strength would overflow through their lives by your spirit into the lives of those that need to be blessed. I pray that you would bind us together in unity as your people. I pray that you would be our hope. Most of all, I pray that you would come again soon, Lord, that we can assemble together with those that have gone on before and with those that are sitting here with us now, with no restriction. But, but if I can call it the restriction, but the restriction of the Holy Spirit to run through our hearts and minds that we can love one another as we ought to in that wonderful place you've prepared for us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We love you. We love your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.